Hi there. Welcome to Totally Fantastic Title. I'm Krista Wallace. Matt looked up a recipe for bread in the bread maker. We're sitting in the living room waiting for the person to come and give us an estimate on replacing our gutters. And Matt says the bread recipe he read calls for the flour to be sifted because then it's less dense and the bread will rise nicely and be lighter. Then I said how I wish I still had my mum's sifter. I loved using the sifter when I was little and we just had this wee one and it was so much fun to do and it made a cool sound and I wish I had that and the nut grinder and my mum would always let me grind the walnuts or whatever for baking. And then I was crying because I missed my mum's sifter and my mum's nut grinder and my mum. Isn't it funny the things that set you off? When we last left our friends, they were about to head up the path to the Indian Caves, and Kier was about to head down some steps. Gatekeeper's Deception by Krista Wallace Chapter 22 What Are We Doing Here? Derry purposefully positioned himself at the head of the procession, with Fennel at the rear of his own party. The elf's hearing would pick up any murmurs from the group that followed, murmurs that could be clues of an imminent betrayal. The captain was not prepared to blindly trust the words of Frederick Hayland, and his benefit of the doubt extended only so far. Frederick and his band could accompany them, but Derry would not relinquish control of the operation. They had awakened at sunrise— The first sign of positive interaction between the two otherwise disparate companies was the agreement to leave the horses below in case the condition of the narrow path was poor or its destination was unaccommodating to horses. The one called Harley had volunteered to stay behind. Derry thought quickly, then nodded at Skimnoddle to remain with him. The halfling was the one most likely to be underestimated. We are outnumbered more than two to one, Terry thought, but Hayland can't risk harm to any of us. He needed the ingredients as much as Derry did, and Derry was sure he didn't know about the key. Besides, if Frederick truly wished to recover Kean's favor, he would be well advised to be an active participant in finding the ingredients. And we could use the help since we are one down. Derry's reasoning gave him cautious comfort as they started up the path that hugged the eastern side of the mountain. After an hour, every member of the group was puffing protestation at the steady but slow incline. Their pace had grown sluggish, and sweat ran down Derry's midriff under his plate armor. He ran a hand across his damp forehead, swiping the blonde bangs aside. Some time later, the path leveled off in the southern direction, and Derry was hopeful it was a sign that they were trudging along the last leg of the journey. The way was narrow and overgrown with thorny bushes. The going was a little unpleasant. Jiskelin's robes caught on the prickles, and he stopped to disentangle himself. Derry and Janik walked in front, wielding sword and axe to slash their way clear. The rising sun's warmth filtered down and got trapped beneath the trees like an oven. Soon all the weary travelers were fountains of sweat and volcanoes of frustration. Derry and Janik were having considerable difficulty with their current barbed foe. The path seemed to be getting smaller in front of them instead of opening. Jiskelin, free of the prickles, suddenly yelled, Stop! The weapons were stilled abruptly mid-swing, but a creaking sound followed for several seconds. 
Look at the bush, you fools! The thorn bush was growing. For each touch of steel, two, three, four weathered-looking vines twisted and coiled across the area. The spiky vines looked just as old as the original from which they stemmed. Derry watched in horror as the plant produced new and even more tangled growth. It continued to burgeon two or more vines for every nick of blade it had endured. "'Will it ever stop?' Derry cried in despair. Skimnoddle looked across the camp to Harley and gave him a little wave, acknowledging the awkwardness of them being left behind together to watch each other. The last of the others had just been sucked into the path up the mountainside. Skimnoddle wondered if Harley had been the one to search him and likely his friends as well last night. A good thief could prevent himself being thieved, and Skimnoddle was an excellent thief. Whoever had explored the party was an amateur, at least in the area of thievery. Unsuspecting hands had groped his person in the night, not quite stealthily enough to avoid the traps the halfling had set to alert himself to any intruder. All three had been tripped. Fortunately, Skimnoddle was also a clever enough thief to have more unusual hiding places than the average person. He patted the hidden pockets where he'd put his share of the ingredients and gently tapped the little bottle of Telema still concealed within his garments. He couldn't help a self-satisfied smile. If the intruder had been successful with the halfling's comrades, he, at least, still had possession of the antidote. Whoever it was, being an amateur, would have had to ensure the targets did not awaken, since he, or she, could not trust that they could complete the task without disturbing the sleepers. A sleeping draft during the evening meal? No, no opportunity, nor had any of them had an uncanny desire to sleep at bedtime. No, the most likely answer was that someone in Frederick's party could perform a sleep spell, and Skimnoddle knew at least one member who fit the bill. When he stole the bottle of Telema, he saw the Mage's Guild symbol sewn into the hem of Misty's tunic. So were Misty and Juggler together on it? Undoubtedly. And were they working under Frederick's orders? Or someone else's? Skimnoddle shuddered to think it. Kier? Kier allegedly wanted the mission to fail, yet she was not present to have had anything to do with the search last night. Were Misty and Juggler carrying on with the plan in her absence? On her behalf? Skimnoddle knew what he had to do. Until the culprits were sussed out, he wanted the ingredients in his own possession. They would be safest there. He must simply find them and steal them back. "'Harley, my good man!' he called in his most heartily welcoming voice as he strode toward his neighbor. "'It is apparent that we have a copious interval within which to ameliorate and fortify our association. Are you familiar with the game of dice?' The hall at the bottom of the steps echoed largely around her, and the feeble torchlight failed to penetrate its depth. The tiled floor reflected the light like a mirror, and Kier moved as noiselessly as her battery of skills allowed her to. She was utterly alone, yet a gnawing fear in the back of her mind told her to avoid drawing attention, any kind of attention, to herself. Any sound, any misstep might awaken something or someone who had been undisturbed since the residents had departed— she hugged the perimeter of the chamber, some nagging hesitation preventing her from venturing into the centre, where she'd be within bow range of some nameless enemy watching her from a high catwalk, ready to pierce her with unseen arrows. Whispers of the voices swirled nearby and were whisked away. Her footfalls brushed against the marble floor. 
The wall to her left curved inward, indicating a circular room. She continued to follow it, though the ring of torchlight illuminated only blank stone. Kier started, a sharp intake of breath. What was that? Exhale. Only an empty torch bracket. Come on, you're behaving like a child. Sticking close to the wall for fifty paces had yielded her nothing. She turned her back to the wall and focused her vision on the depth of darkness ahead. She took a step forward, and another. Why is it I keep finding myself underground in total darkness? She couldn't manage a wry grimace. I only hope there isn't an earthquake. Were those whispers growing louder? No, just more of them at once. Fear thrilled up her back as she exposed it to the darkness behind her. There was no longer a wall to steady her. The light revealed a change in the flooring ahead. The plain marble slabs were now reddish in color, and several triangular slabs laid together formed a larger triangle, its peak pointing ahead of Kier. A side step showed another similar formation next to it, and beyond it another. The triangles pointed into the center of a circle on the floor. I am not going into that circle, no question about it. She turned left, estimating that to be the direction exactly opposite from the archway by which she had entered. So consciously avoiding the inner circle, she did not see the white line of stone slabs. She only noticed that the floor suddenly felt different under her booted foot, less polished, chalky. At the same time as she saw a black patch ahead out of the corner of her eye, she heard the voices. Fowell, 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 intruder, intruder, intruder overlapping one another, still barely more than a whisper, but for the first time, intelligible. In dark elvish, some voices slow and thoughtful, others sharp and decisive. Hostile? Quite possibly. She hastened over to the dark patch, hoping it was a door. Nearing it, her suspicion was confirmed, an arched door, closed with a simple latch. That inner voice she never listened to told her explicitly not to open the door. Her conscience said only that she had no dust for Alon Mare. If she left the caves now, she would never return. She had to get it right the first time. Kier wiped a sweaty palm on her trousers and flexed her fingers, eyes fixed on the latch. Better to do it fast and get it over. Don't even think about what's on the other side. Quick as a bird darting out of a tree, she flicked the latch and threw open the door. A staircase led down. She shuddered. But before she could begin her descent, it occurred to her that the torch had grown brighter. A horrifying thought came to her. She slowly straightened and turned around. The center of the circle of triangles was frighteningly visible where before it had been cloaked in blackness. Red-yellow light swirled like smoke, lifting the veil off the entire chamber. The light revolved, growing taller, spiraling up toward the vastly high ceiling. Kier's gaze involuntarily followed it upward until a different movement startled her back down to ground level. A billowy figure took shape within the smoky light. A cloaked figure with arms folded, though as she watched it spread its arms wide and stepped out of the light toward her. As it did so, the voices rose, too jumbled to make sense of, the murmurings more and more intense, harsh-sounding, angry. Kier did not wait to see if the figure wanted a friendly chat. She hurled herself down the stairway, no plan in mind, no way of knowing where the stairs led, and no clue where to begin looking for the dust. Kami, help me!' 
Fifteen steps, twenty, twenty-five, and she'd reached the bottom. Torch held high, she raced along the corridor, breath coming in puffs, blood pulsing in her brain. A door, a room, she needed something. Some place where dust might have accumulated. For a place that had been unused for so long, the Indian caves were dismayingly dust-free. She risked a glance behind her and regretted it. Outside of the swirling smoke, the figure appeared not as a solid being, but as a transparent heat wave rippling above a dirt road in high summer, such that if it were to stop moving, Kier had the idea that it would be invisible. It neared the bottom of the steps just as Kier reached a corner. She turned right. From behind her came a throaty growl. Heart somewhere up near her collarbone, she pressed on. An archway on the right. She thrust herself in and held up the torch. No time to determine what kind of room it was. All that mattered was that it was utterly devoid of dust. Whirling around, she flew out and carried on down the passage. Door on the left, closed. She'd had a bad experience last time she'd opened a door, but there was no time to consider the consequences. Her damp hand fumbled with the latch, but finally opened it. She gasped as she looked back down the corridor to see the figure rounding the corner. Inside, she slammed the door, not caring that she might never open it again, thinking only of keeping out that thing. Yes, yes, something in her head said earnestly. Kami? The torch lent only feeble illumination, but the sound of Kier's own breathing echoed around what felt like a fairly large chamber. Several of some sort of apparatus huddled here and there. A few steps closer to the nearest of them revealed it to be something Kier would never have guessed, but recognized instantly to be what she was seeking. A potter's wheel. She swept a finger across the disc that had once held a dark elven potter's creation, but the surface was rough like a grinding stone. Not a potter's wheel, then. She frowned, puzzled. Her raised torch revealed at least half a dozen of the apparatuses, with possibly more farther into the darkness. The walls were lined with shelving, a few cracked and broken stones strewn among them. She picked up one of the stones and held it up to the light. Not pottery! Gems! These were not potter's wheels, they were machines for polishing gems. The grinding stone would turn with the pressing of the pedal beneath, and below the stone disc, in a sort of gully, lay a fine layer of dust. The torch found a temporary home on a shelf, and in the bizarre shadows cast on the walls around, Kier pulled out the small sack. The latch rattled behind her. "'Get out!' a dark elvish voice. "'No!' she yelled, scraping the side of her hand across the disc to gather what little dust remained. Startled silence beyond the door, but she hardly noticed. "'This can't be all there is!' The voice was deep and haunting in spite of being soundless. "'You understand the forbidden tongue?' it said in dark elvish. "'Shit!' Kier had always intended to ask Brendau what might happen to her if a dark elf discovered that she spoke the language. This was not the time to find out. She could be signing her own death warrant. "'You understood the words spoken before. Rydrish this time. The words were a demand, not a question.' Sweat ran down her chest and her face. She did not respond to the voice. If her pulsing heart rose any higher, it would choke her. "'All that matters is the dust!' She bent to see if more of the red powder could be found in the tray that normally held water. Her luck was holding. Luck? If I had luck, there would be no ghostly being awaiting me outside that door. 
She scraped her cupped fingers around the perimeter of the tray, gathering the chalk-like stuff into a small heap. There was precious little of it, and she needed every bit. The spectral being was unlikely to give her time enough to attend every machine in the room. "'No,' she answered, finally, unable to quell the tremor in her voice. "'What are you?' "'Nothing. What do you seek?' "'What I've found!' The thing's chuckle sent another quiver through her arms, and she nearly dropped the tiny scoop of dust. Her skin crinkled again as she realized she was no longer alone in the room. She wheeled around to see the shimmering figure take position by the door. Her guess was correct. It was visible only when it moved. She'd run out of time. In a last-ditch effort to get every minute particle, she thrust her hand against the outside of the bag, turning a section of it inside out. Swiftly, she swept out the tray with it, wiping away virtually all the fine particles of ground-red gems that remained. She repeated the movement in the second wheel and raced to a third. The figure approached. I'm out of time. She hoped it was enough. Then, with a twist, she turned the bag the right way around and shoved it inside the front of her leather breastplate. Why do you do this? Because I need to. Let me out. Kier snatched up the torch and waved it at the figure. The figure raised its arms to block her. Kier quick-stepped to the left, then danced to the right, ducking under its arm to the door. Her shaking hands had trouble with the latch, and the all-too-close proximity to the dark elven sentinel raised goose flesh on her neck. She flung the door open and picked up her pace to tear back down the way she'd come, but nearly ran headlong into another of the shimmering sentries. A shriek rising in her throat, she whirled around and pelted down the corridor in the other direction, flying past the doorway from which the first figure was only just emerging. A shudder rippled through her as she evaded his outstretched arm for a second time. Another junction approached, left, right, or straight ahead. Any instinct she may have had about the direction she should choose was drowned out by the voices. She chose right, if only to get out of sight of those figures. She didn't dare look around to see if they still pursued her. Getting out was her only thought. Whispering and murmuring had amplified to yelling and wailing, as though she were a convicted criminal enduring the taunts and jeers of onlookers before her execution. Covering her ears failed her. The noise pierced through. This passage curved left and right and left again until Kierre could not guess which direction she was headed. Her leather boots made muffled poundings on the stone floor. Hair straggled into her eyes and she brushed it away. Her breath came in gusts as loud as storm winds in the corridor that was both alive with the sound of sourceless voices and deadly quiet with its long emptiness. How much longer would her torch last? "'Stairs! I need stairs!' she begged. Another corridor opened up on her right. She slowed a touch to determine if she should take it, almost near enough to peer down it. The figure stepped out before she had time to skid to a halt. She careened to one side to avoid it, but it hadn't finished its movement to enter her path. She slammed into it. Icy chill, like diving into a glacier-fed lake, perforated through every pore, penetrated her bloodstream, and flowed with it. Each frigid heartbeat pulsed frost-like blood through her lungs, through her brain, through every limb, benumbing her. And the voices had stopped. Either that, or she simply could not hear them any longer. Sudden, heavy stillness. I must be dead. 
Then she was through it. Her stiff, icy body hit a blast of heat like stepping out of the shade into blazing sun. She landed on the floor, knees and elbows taking the impact, too numb and chilled through to move. The voices had returned, though they had hushed expectantly, awaiting something. The figure loomed over her. Soon it was joined by another. And another. You are ours now. No, she managed to whisper. I... Out. Alon. The kindly face of Kian's wife appeared in Kier's cold, deadened mind, the distant smile as she toyed with a blue-gold serpent on a chain around her neck. Fury glowed somewhere deep inside Kier and sent warmth surging along her veins, eliminating the freeze in its path. With every iota of energy she could summon, Kier hauled herself to her feet, picking up the fallen torch in stiff, grasping fingers. Without a backward glance, she stumbled into a run and carried on down the corridor, and reached another junction. A quick peek revealed what she most desired. Stairs. Assailed by a strange mixture of relief at the sight of them and dread at what might await her above, she forced herself onward. It was the only way out that she knew if these steps would even take her back up to the echoey entrance chamber. Nothing could prevent her from fighting to the last to escape these haunted halls. Hostile voices descended the stairs like mist. Behind her, the rippling forms of the guards, all three of them, approached torturously slow. This must be what Brendau meant by being stuck between the hammer and the anvil. There was only one choice. Out was up. With full strength returning, she flew up the stairs two at a time and flung open the door. The brightness from the center of the room made her squint. It was indeed the same chamber where the first sinister sentinel had appeared. But this time she was on the other side of the room. The door by which she'd exited could just be seen on the far side over to her right. A figure materialized in it, and she stopped. Her automatic reaction was to back down the stairs she had just climbed, but over her shoulder she saw they were coming. Three there and a fourth in the other doorway. Hellfire! How many more? The disembodied voices were all around. Kier turned on her adrenaline and ran forward, her goal the entrance archway on the other side of the chamber. She felt the blast of cold as the figures of the guards reached the top of the stairs behind her. She dared not pass through that billowing, spiraling light in the center of the room and circuited around it to the left, the more direct path to the arch. Something knocked her aside and she dropped her torch, which abruptly went out. Blackness enveloped her. As if someone had pinched a candle flame, all light was extinguished. The angry voices hissed. She screamed. A hand pushed her from behind. She fell. Trembling knees did not allow her to rise. She curled into a ball with her arms covering her head. Who are you? Nobody, she pleaded. Dark elf, a guard challenged, though she couldn't tell if it was the same one. No. What then? A chilly finger poked the back of her neck. Human. You know our language? No! Kier shook her head frantically. How did you get into our caves? I have the key. You lie. An ice-booted foot nudged her in the ribs and she rolled to retreat from it. I do not. Where is it? In my head. Impossible. I'm in, aren't I? The voices stopped. 
Kier's ragged breathing echoed throughout the chamber as if she were but one of a hundred terrified warriors. You intrude on our sacred space. Then let me leave. You are a thief. I'm sorry, she pleaded. It's only dust. I need to get out. Kier put one foot under herself and pushed up to standing, all the while trying to steady her breathing. Who sent you here? She ignored the question. Her own voice came purposefully projected, as if to prove to herself that she could still speak. It quavered, and she tried to quell it. I need this to save a friend's life. I'm helping Dunvarin. You ought to know him, at least. A thoughtful pause. The voices began their murmurings again. Disapproval. Dunvarin ought to know better. He doesn't know I'm here. And he will not learn it. The chamber blazed with sourceless firelight. Between the fingers that shaded her eyes, Kier saw seven shimmering ethereal figures surrounding her. The voice hissed, You will not leave this hall. The bush stopped growing, finally. Faces peered over shoulders to stare at the deeper, thicker, thornier, deadlier obstacle that now confronted them. Each vine was, at the narrowest point, thicker than Janik's thumb and even more calloused. "'What the blazes do we do now?' demanded Janik of Jeskelin. The mage did not respond right away. Jeskelin was reluctant to try fire, as it was not their objective to clear the entire forest of greenery. He finally settled on a very small fireball just to see the effect it would have on the plant." Hopefully a small amount of fire will have only a small effect, he thought as he took aim, especially if it is not the effect we are looking for. He threw it right at the center of the wall of vines. The ball passed between the vines and its light spread outward and onward through the thick growth. It wove in and around each tendril and was visible as it traveled from this end of the bush to several feet farther on, like lightning forking through the vines. It appeared to dissipate, either that or this bush was so thick they could not see through to its other side. Apart from the spectacular light display, the fire had no effect on the plant. Without warning, the plant hissed and spit a multitude of sparks at them, as if it had gathered up Jeskelin's fireball and was vomiting it back at its source. Jeskelin and Derry were in front and took the brunt of it. They shrieked and stamped and patted themselves all over to extinguish them. Derry felt more than one spot on his face that stung, and there were several singe marks on his clothing. He sighed. There was no way up the mountainside. No other path had opened to their view. Derry rested his hand on the back of his neck and pressed his cheek into the forearm. They were stuck. "'All right, now what?' one of Frederick's men said with unchecked impatience. "'If the so-called captain can't manage to break through, then let Hunter have a go,' said another." Misty's turn, said Juggler, and the group fell silent. I think it's very simple, Fennel began. Shut up, Elf, Misty interrupted. Shut up, Janik said to no one in particular, and Derry put a hand on his shoulder. It's clear that your mage can do nothing, Misty said with modest superiority, so why not let a more advanced personage make an attempt? Derry's skin tightened at her manner, but since he could think of no reason to object and also thought it prudent to allow it, merely said, Why not indeed? 
He bowed and gave her the floor. He also gave a warning glance to Jeskellen, who looked to be stretching to full height in preparation to defend his honor. The dark curled woman strode by Derry, the top of her head reaching his nose, where Kier came up only to his chin. This woman was willowy, where his comrade at arms was solid. Not ungraceful, no, Derry had always appreciated the lithesomeness and balance with which his friend executed each movement. The mage's skin looked to him as polished and untarnished as the bone hilt of a dagger his father had owned. Derry, as a young boy, had admired its sheen so smooth under his fingertips. Misty's cheeks had an untouched quality that made her look wholesome. Yet somehow Derry did not believe it. It was superficial. Kier's scars and physical imperfections gave her a striking, rugged beauty that could easily be overlooked at first glance, but was unmistakable at the second. Strange that I should compare the two, he thought, right here, now. And his jaw clenched at the unbidden memory of his last conversation with Kier. Would it be his last ever? Derry shuddered back to the here and now as Misty made a gesture with one hand that remarkably resembled a harpist plucking her strings. The result surprised them all. The plant did nothing. Misty's forehead wrinkled in disbelief. Jeskellen lifted his chin in a self-satisfied attitude, and Derry gave him another warning glare. The last thing we need is to end up in full battle on this hellfire path. Misty raised her hand again. Her fingers at full extension, Derry saw the energy pulse through her to stiffen them as the spell shot out their tips. So fast it was almost simultaneous, the plant fired back. Two tendrils whacked together, spikes inward, with Misty's forefinger between them. Derry jumped backwards, startled, and Misty howled with pain and rage. She was too smart to try another spell on the plant, even in retaliation. Derry reached into his pack for his physicker's kit, but before he could finish the movement, she lashed out at him. "'You keep away from me with your pitiful little treatments!' she snapped, and Derry held up his hands in surrender. He didn't mind not helping her. She performed some healing spell on herself. The bleeding stopped, and she flounced back to join her twin. "'If I might suggest we just wait a minute,' Fennel started again." "'Do we have a choice? We can't exactly rush off anywhere,' grunted Janik, his usual temperament having returned. Fennel hooshed at the dwarf, the closest the elf had ever come to imitating one of Janik's growls. "'Will you please just listen for a second? Fennel insisted. "'This is obviously a most excellent barrier,' he continued, upon establishing that he wasn't going to be interrupted again, "'for the purpose of keeping visitors out. "'These are elvish caves we're trying to reach. "'If this is an elvish bush, what do you think we should do, offer it some elvish wine?' Misty said. "'Enough!' cried Derry impatiently. "'What is your idea, Fennel?' The elf bowed ceremoniously. "'Considering we have tried every possible aggressive method, "'I thought perhaps we could attempt more diplomacy.' "'And without waiting for a response from either company, "'he approached the bush amid all scoffs and rolling eyes. "'He spoke softly to it in Elvish. "'The others looked at each other doubtfully, "'but were stunned to silence when the bush rustled its thorns "'as if in response. "'Derry could hear nothing but saw the subtle movement of the plant.' It seemed to consider what the elf had said. He was as startled as the rest when Fennel turned to him. It's a treyern. It wants to speak to you. What, did it say, take me to your leader or something? Janik asked. 
No, it asked to speak to the one who possesses the runes, Fennel corrected. I explained the urgency of our errand, and it is not unhappy to accept us. Kian and Valraker are handy friends to have. At least their names are, since bandying them around is proving to be quite helpful, but it wants proof. Derry hesitated, wondering how he was supposed to prove their errand to a bush, but finally accepted the necessity of attempting communication with it and stepped forward. Warmth crept up his neck, and he cleared his throat. But before he could utter a word, he felt a localized push in the side of his head, and words entered, as if they had somehow bored a passage through his skull like worms in an apple. He even understood its words. "'You have the key?' it asked. Derry started to voice his response, but the plant had already heard it within his thoughts. It was most unnerving. "'Show me,' it said." "'Well,' Derry began, getting the hang of the voiceless dialogue, "'I don't have the stone. It has been copied.' He pulled the pouch out of its home. "'Scratched, actually, into this leather pouch. Do I hold it up?' The bush shivered again, and Derry felt it chuckle with a tingling inside his head. "'Let me see it through your eyes.' Derry looked at the runes and felt the plant seeing them. "'What the hell's the hold-up?' someone shouted. "'Shut it, Kep!' Frederick's voice. "'Who did this, and where is the stone?' If a plant could speak with a tone, it was one of curiosity or suspicion. "'The stone is safe with the realm guard. It was copied by a friend of mine who knew it was needed.' The Treyern seemed to be thinking, and Derry thought it not fair that it could read his thoughts, but he could not read the plants. He only felt it murmuring to itself. "'Where is this friend of whom you speak?' "'I don't know,' Derry admitted, casting his eyes down. "'She left us.' He felt the pressure in his temple again, as if the Treyern were probing his thoughts. "'Hey, cut that out!' He rubbed the side of his head for all the good it would do. "'Very well, you may pass.' And with that, to the amazement of all, the Treyern began to withdraw. It coiled back its twisted limbs amongst the trees and bushes. Thorns, prickles, and barbs had evaporated, and no evidence whatsoever of a treyern plant remained. Within moments an opening appeared before them, the exit from the stuffy, arduous incline. Derry led his company through, followed closely by Frederick and his eight companions. Derry half expected the vines to entangle them within the pathway, but they did not. A plateau spread out on the mountainside, about fifteen paces from the entrance to the far side, and perhaps ten from the hill-face to the drop-off on the left. Both sets of travellers filed onto it. Two flat stone pillars had been erected on the right, in front of the doors, with the mountain extending above them and far to the north. Derry followed it with his eyes. The eastern sun gazed upon it between the trees, without opening its curtain of thin cloud, casting soft-edged shadows across the hills. The captain stepped toward the pillars, the pulse in his throat beating the rhythm of his excitement. He looked at what lay behind the stones, and his eyes widened in dismay. The chaotic zoo of runes that spattered the doors all but caused Derry's eyes to cross— he held up the leather pouch, and his heart sank to his knees at the futility of the search. "'What are we doing here?' he thought, wishing again that Kier had not left. A commotion behind him tore him from the daunting task of finding the rune pattern. The group was quarrelling. He stepped back through the pillars to hear Fennel say, 
What have you done with them? I knew you were in this for yourself. Fennel, what's going on? Derry demanded, grabbing the elf by the shoulder and urging him to step back from Frederick. Fennel shoved off Derry's hand and pointed. I was standing there next to the tray urn, and it told me to check my pockets. He shook his head violently, as if trying to knock his wits together. Damn it, I knew we shouldn't have trusted you, Frederick. Whoa, whoa, what is this all about? Derry grabbed Fennel by both shoulders this time. The ingredients for the antidote, he cried. My pouches are gone. The stuff has been stolen. Mine are gone too, Janik announced. Jaskellen looked shocked. Derry dropped Kier's pouch, his hands rushing to his own share of the ingredients. He wheeled around to face Frederick Hayland. You, he said, what have you done with it? Frederick blanched. Nothing! I give you my word! You expect us to trust your word? Fennel interjected. Why would I take it from you? Frederick said emphatically. It would make me a hero, but betraying my lord's best men wouldn't exactly make the good impression I'm looking for. You're accusing us of stealing from you? Someone said. Outrageous, said someone else. Flashes of steel flew about the clearing. Sunny days bother me. Obviously, they have their good points, like it's good to have a sunny day when you want to go on a hike or sit on an outdoor patio or for like a wedding. But when my kids were little, I used to find sunny days stressful because I believed there was pressure on me to take the kids outside to play or to the park. Oh my God, I hated going to the park. I used to take them there and then start looking at my watch and After 45 minutes, I was like, okay, that's it. We got to go. And I couldn't wait to get home. I do not like the park. Do not like other parents. Do not like other kids. I did like walking to the library because I would read aloud to them as we walked. I like to read while I'm walking. Does anybody else do that? Anyway, I read so many books to the kids while we were walking, like Treasure Island and The Secret World of Og and Harry Potter, of course. And there was this section of forest we walked through en route to the library. And it was a total coincidence, but the coolest thing in the world that happened while we were reading The Hobbit was we got to the chapter called Riddles in the Dark while walking through that forest. It was so creepy, just the perfect atmosphere. Anyway, I always preferred staying indoors, and when it was rainy, I had an excuse so I could relax about living up to societal expectations. Nowadays, I don't like sunny days because inevitably some jackass decides to take their plane out for a ride, a spin, a zoom, what do you call it? I don't know what they call it, but it doesn't matter. The point is, it can be rainy and gloomy, and then all of a sudden, the sun comes out. And out come all the little planes to fly over my house and be loud while I'm trying to record. And I have to stop and wait for them. And it's usually perfectly choreographed with the neighbors vacuuming or using a chainsaw or some damn thing. Stupid planes. There's one right now. Stupid sun. Thank you to my dear family, Matt, David and Heather, and Maggie. I miss reading aloud to you guys. Thanks to David and Sharon for reading to me and teaching me to love reading aloud to my kids. Thank you to the original six and thank 
you, dear listeners, for letting me read to you. Now, go be fantastic.